Can I get you to turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 6? Um, we'll start from the end of chapter 5, but essentially we're doing the whole of chapter 6. There's an outline you received as you came in. Um, might be helpful to have that in front of you um, as well. Some people like to take notes to help them stay awake. Um, and you can do that if you'd like to do that as well. I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus did die for us, one for many. Thank you that because he died for us, we now have new life in him. New life under you and under, under your rule. Father, we pray that you would rule us uh, by your word and spirit uh, this morning. We pray that as we look at your word together, you will help us to understand this difficult passage. Um, that you enable us to see um, who we are in Christ uh, and therefore how we should act. Uh, so please help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel of grace is a very radical gospel, isn't it? Uh, it says that we are accepted to God, acceptable to God only by the grace of the Lord Jesus, only by the grace that God has shown us in Jesus. Our standing with God doesn't depend on what we've done. It depends on what he has done for us. And I'm sure that as you've talked with people about this, as you sought to share the gospel with people, you would have come across the objection that, well, if it's all about grace, then Christians can sin as much as they like, can't they? If people say that? Yeah, they always say that. And in a sense, when they say that, that's good, because it kind of like shows that, on one hand, they've misunderstood, but on the other hand, it kind of like shows that you've preached grace, uh, and you've preached grace rightly. The Holy Spirit expects there to be misunderstanding along those lines. Uh, and that is why he has given us Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 addresses uh, those particular issues. Before we look at Romans 6, let me just quickly remind you of where we're up to in the book of Romans. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw the gospel is a theme for Romans. And the gospel is all about Jesus, God's promised king. We saw the gospel, the good news, is God's power for salvation for those who believe, a salvation that comes by faith. And then we saw why we need the gospel. We're all sinners, both Jew and Gentile. That was from the middle of chapter 1 to the middle of chapter 3. And in the second half of chapter 3, we got into the heart of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins on our behalf, to propitiate God's wrath, to bring us justification and reconciliation. Justification means that God declared us not guilty, because Jesus took our sins. Reconciliation means now we are in good relationship with God again. And then in chapter 4, we kind of like went on to clarifying mode. We went to double-click the word justification by faith. And we saw it was faith, not works, that was the instrument of justification. That is, we don't get justified by doing good things, it's by trusting in God. And then in the first half of chapter 5, we explore the results of justification. We have peace with God. We have a standing in grace. We have hope that sustains us through suffering. 
We have assurance for eternal future. And then two weeks ago, before we took our break from Romans, we began to look at objections to this gospel in the second half of chapter 5. And one question that someone might have asked is, how, is it right that one person can make such a difference? Is it right Jesus as one single man could, could by his death bring life to everyone? And we saw that it was perfectly right. For one act of disobedience, the trespass of Adam brought condemnation and death for many. So one act of righteousness, the death of Jesus, brought justification and life for many. One for many, as we sang about just now. But one of the issues that Paul, writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, had to deal with as he was showing this in chapter 5 was the question of law. We saw that there was sin even when there was no law. It wasn't technically called trespass, because trespass by definition is a a violation of a specific law, but, but there was sin. Because sin is broader than trespass. It's it's more than just breaking a known law. It's it's failing to treat God properly. And all people are guilty of that, whether or not there's law. Everyone since Adam has failed to honour God and glorify him properly, and we do that quite naturally because we have a sinful nature from Adam. And so in some way, the sin of Adam is transmitted or imputed to us. But then, for 1,450 years before Christ, God gave the people the law through Moses. There was the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws that went with them. Now, why do you think God did that? Was God's giving of the law the way of of rescuing people? Was the law the solution to the problem of sin? Keep this law and you will live? Well, if people really did keep the law, they would live. It would be okay. But people are sinful by nature. If you give us the law, we'll break it. And God knew that. And we saw in our Old Testament reading today that even Moses knew that. The one through whom the law came. So why the law? Well, the answer, or at least one part of it, is in chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. Hang on, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Surely the law is there to decrease all that bad stuff. We rub our eyes, put on the glasses, the bifocals perhaps. Look at the page again. Are we reading this right? The law was given to increase the trespass. Remember, without the specific instruction, there's no trespass. The law makes it worse. Makes sin even more sinful. Because you see, it's bad enough when you do something which which is kind of like against your conscience, but when you've got stone tablets directly from God saying, you do this, you don't do that, (laughs) and you still do it, it doesn't make it worse. So the law reintroduced the trespass, resulted in more sin. Sin became quantifiable and sin became worse. But verse 20, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the word abounded there is literally superabounded. Right? And the word grace means God being kind to people the way we don't deserve. So where sin got more, 
grace got more. Because you see, God is always faithful to his promises. And in Israel's history, as sin increased and increased and increased more and more, God had to be more and more and more gracious in order to fulfill his promises. The more there was sin, the less Israel deserved what God promised them. The more there had to be grace in order to fulfill the promises. And the climax of that grace was in fulfilling his promise to send his son to die for our sins and to be our king. That is such an immense gift from God. Something that we're completely and utterly undeserving of. And so the coming of sin through the law, the magnifying of sin through the law rather, there was nothing compared to the greatness of the coming of grace or the superabundance of grace through Jesus Christ. Where, grace in, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, God had a purpose for that. He had a reason for being so gracious. Grace abounded, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin had reigned in death. Sin had been the master of humanity. We had been caught up in it. Unable to escape its clutches. Now, at one level, of course, we have real moral decisions to make. Decisions for which we are responsible. But our wills are so bound by sin that we are so addicted to sin that we always choose to to reject God's rulership in our lives. Sin reigned over us. And the end result of that is death. But God's grace superabounded so that, verse 21, as sin, again, sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus. There you've got the realm where sin reigns. Now God wants to create another realm, a new kingdom, a new country, a spiritual place where sin is no longer the master. And sin is replaced by grace. A place where the inspiration, the incentive, the drive for what we do is no longer an addictive slavery to sin, but a response of love to the undeserved kindness of God in Christ. Where we are motivated, not by sin, but by grace. And the end point of that kingdom is eternal life. That is a new realm that God made by grace through Jesus Christ. And so now there are two realms, two kingdoms, two spheres, two dominions. We can picture it as like two boxes coming up on the screen. On the left-hand side, you've got the realm of death, where sin is in control. And on the right-hand side, you've got the realm of righteousness, where grace is in control. In the domain of death, the thing that dominates everything else is human sin. In the realm of righteousness... The thing that dominates everything else is God's grace. Now, which realm are you in? You're in the old realm? The place where humans have naturally been since Adam? Living under the bondage of sin and facing eternal death? Or are you in the realm of righteousness? Where God counts you sinless because you are in Christ. Even though you're not sinless where grace rules your life 
where you are saved by God's grace, you're no longer condemned. And you're motivated by God's grace, which leads you to holy living. Does God's amazing kindness to you in the Lord Jesus Christ control your life and your priorities so that you are no longer living for yourself, but you're living for Him? Which realm are you in? If you're living in the realm of righteousness, on the right-hand side, then grace is what reigns. Your relationship with God is completely based on grace. Not on performance. A promise of salvation. Not dependent on the ability to keep the law. A righteousness. Not from works, but from what God has done for us in Christ. As I said earlier, when you talk about that kind of thing, people, people misunderstand. People think that that means you can sin whatever you like because you're living in grace. And sometimes people try to twist things. And someone might say, someone might say to Paul, Paul, just now you said when sin increased, grace increased all the more. When sin abounded, grace superabounded. That's great, isn't it? More grace. Because of God's promises. Now, if God has promised to save us through Jesus, then the more we sin, the more grace he will show in order to keep his promises. Like Israel of old. So, why not we sin more? Right? We sin more and more so that God's grace can be seen more and more. And God will be glorified more and more because of his grace. Why don't we do that? Paul anticipates that. So in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who die to sin, still live in it? If you die to sin, how can you live in it? How can you talk like that and say you want to have more and more sin? Now, what does it mean that you die to sin? It doesn't mean that it is no longer possible for us to sin. It doesn't mean that. We know that from verse 12, where we're told not to let sin reign. It was no longer possible for us to let sin reign, then we wouldn't have to be told not to let sin reign, would we? And sadly, we know from our own experience that that's not the case. We are still tempted to sin. So what does it mean that we die to sin? Well, look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Remember from last week? Baptism is the outward sign of conversion. Remember back in the early church when someone came to trust in Christ immediately they were baptized. That was the sign on the outside of when they have faith on the inside. If you want to ask which part of the package is actually the, most, is the, the effective one, it's, it's faith. We can tell that from the first half of Romans. It's like when people drink wine, it's not the grape juice that gets them drunk, it's the it's the alcohol. But it comes as one package. Repentance, faith, baptism. And so Paul's saying when someone is baptized, or in other words, talking about the package, someone comes to faith in Christ, they are united with Christ. 
But the point isn't about the package so much. He's not giving a theology of baptism or anything here. The point is, when we are converted, we are united with Christ in his death. That is the basis of our justification in previous chapters. Our union with Christ, and in our, in our union with Christ, all our sins are shared with him. He paid for them all. And all his righteousness is shared with us, so that we are spiritually and forensically one with Christ. God's law court, we're considered one and the same person. We're united with Christ. When he died, we died. Which means that the person on the left-hand side is actually dead. That is a spiritual reality. And the left-hand side is a box where, where sin reigns. That's why Paul says we died to sin. We no longer live in, the, in that realm of sin anymore. We no longer live under the bondage of sin. We don't, sin is not our master anymore. The person on the left hand side of the picture died when we came to Christ. That is the spiritual reality of everyone who belongs to Jesus. Now, death is not the end of the story. Because the purpose of being united to Jesus in his death is so that we can be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So it's not just that the person on the left hand side is gone. There is a new person on the right hand side of the diagram. The whole purpose of our spiritual death and resurrection is so that we would be on the right hand side of the diagram so that we would walk in newness of life. So that we would live a new life under God outside of sin's domain. So we ask back the question, are we to continue in sin so that grace might abound? How can? The whole work of grace is to deliver us from, so that we can live in the new realm, the realm of Christ, that we're not under sin anymore. It's silly, isn't it, to sin more so that grace may abound? Just... Paul says this again in a different way in verses 6 to 7. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now again, this is, this is very, uh, how do I say, very put up, very uh, tightly packed stuff, and you know, pull it out, and it's okay. So the word set free, verse 7, is actually the word justified. Right? If we have already died with Christ, we have been justified from sin. God has already declared us not guilty. But we look at verse 7, it starts with the word for, which means that verse 7 is the reason for verse 6. And so we have been justified so that, verse 6, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It might be destroyed. In other words, so that little man on the left, in rebellion against God, or a little lady on the left, rebelling against God, would cease to exist. The purpose of getting rid of that little person on the left is so that, verse 6 again, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? So he's saying that we were justified 
so that we would no longer be on the left-hand side, but on the right-hand side, that we would no longer be serving sin. The point of our justification is so that we would serve God and not sin. So we go back to the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And you say, no, of course not, how can? The point of God justifying us is so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul puts it in the third way, in verses 8 to 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, with reference to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God, or with reference to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I hear the Holy Spirit wants us to think differently about Jesus, a bit differently about Jesus' death and resurrection, come from another angle. When Jesus died on the cross, he died with all our sins on his shoulders. Even though he was innocent, even though he was sinless, he was bearing all our sins. It's as if he was there on that left-hand side, the greatest sinner of all, under the wrath of a holy God, on our behalf. When he died, he died with reference to sin. Verse 10. He died there. But once he died, as far as sin is concerned, he's, he's dead. That's the end of the story as far as our sin, being on Jesus, and Jesus is concerned. When he rose from the dead, he's no longer under sin and death. The penalty of sin that made him die, our sin, has been paid. The death that he suffered, verse 9, no longer has dominion over him. As far as he is concerned, he died. As far as sin is concerned, he died. That's it. They don't have anything to do with each other anymore. But the life he lives, he lives with reference to God. He doesn't live for sin, doesn't live in sin, doesn't live under sin. But he lives for God. He lives in God. He, he lives under God. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but living, he lives to God. And so the Holy Spirit says, you are in Christ, you have been united with him. And so you must consider yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't belong to sin anymore, have nothing to do with it anymore. Consider yourself dead with reference to sin. Think about it that way. Like Jesus... Live for God. So back to the question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer again is, how can? If we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, then we are no longer under sin's rule. We don't belong under sin and death anymore. I have nothing to do with it. And so therefore, God says in verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. The reality is that sin is not over you anymore. Sin is not your master, so do not let it reign. Remember what it was like to be in school? You had to have your hair cut in a certain way. There were rules for it, weren't there? In my school, the discipline master, Mr. Argus, used to cut the boy's hair himself if they flouted the rules. 
You have to wear a uniform. You have to wear clean white shoes. You know, you put that liquid white stuff on it to make it look really white. You had no choice on that because you were under the school rules. The discipline master was your discipline master. But what about now? School rules don't apply to you now, do they? As far as your school is concerned, you may as well be dead. Your discipline master doesn't care for you anymore. Sorry if that disappoints you. But really he doesn't. You can wear dirty black shoes and he's not going to complain. You can skip assembly every day and he's not going to call your parents. You're not under the school. You don't have to obey him. But imagine one day you meet your old discipline master and he sees your long hair and he scolds you. He says, I'm giving you a two-day warning before I bring my scissors and a big ball and put it on top of your head and go all the way around. Did you get a haircut? Would you let him near you with his scissors? What if he told you, you have to be at school tomorrow at 7.30 a.m. until 1.30 p.m.? Would you turn up? If he gave you detention, would you obey him? Or would you go to your workplace or your university instead? You've got a new set of obligations, haven't you? Wouldn't you say, no, Mr. Argus, I don't belong under you anymore. I have a new boss and he's expecting me at work at 8.30. I cannot come to your school. Wouldn't you say that? Or would you go back listening to Mr. Argus? back at your school and obey him. Brothers and sisters, God says you have died to sin. You don't live under it anymore. The old you who is under sin died with Christ. Now you live under his rule. He is your master, not sin. Your obligation is to him, not to sin. Therefore, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. It's got no right over you. You have no obligation to it. Don't let it tell you what to do. Verse 13, do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't give your body parts to sin. Your body belongs to God now. Don't use your eyes to look at porn. Don't use your ears to listen to gossip. Don't use your mouth to speak unkind words. Don't use your fingers to doctor the books. Don't use your feet to take you to places where you shouldn't go. Don't use your private parts for sex outside marriage, before, during or after. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But instead, the verse continues, Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Present your bodies to God, each bit of you. You were given new life so that every part of you belongs to Him. Present yourself to God. And there's another reason to offer yourself to God instead of sin. 
Paul gives us that in verse 14. For sin will have no more dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. When Jews were under the law, they had to obey it or be cursed. But friends, through Jesus, we are not under the law of Moses anymore. We are under grace. We don't relate to God on the basis of law. We're accepted by God completely in Christ. Our connection with God doesn't depend on us keeping the law. It springs from grace. So sin, sin's teeth have been pulled out. Sin cannot prevent us from relating to God anymore. We, we live in grace. Therefore, sin will not have dominion over us. Can't keep telling us. Because if we live in grace, then we live in the opposite box. But we don't relate to God on the basis of law. In the box on the right hand side, grace not only saves us, but rules us. It is grace that motivates us. We are motivated by God's grace, not motivated by guilt. Motivated by grace. And grace trains us for holy living. Because we're not wallowing in guilt, sin, we know we can relate cleanly to God. Not under law, but under grace. So remember the question, shall we sin so that grace may increase? It's a stupid question, isn't it? The whole point of grace is to take us from the dominion of sin to being under grace. So we have no obligation to sin. Fleed from the clutches of sin and death. Our obligation is to serve God. Don't live under the law. Live under grace. But that raises another question. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? If we're not under the law anymore, then does that mean that off we go and just sin rampantly? It's almost the same as the last question, but slightly different, isn't it? Go back to our school illustration. The fact that we're no longer under the law of Moses is analogous to the fact that we've grown up, most of us at least, and are no longer under the school rules. So it's like asking, shall we be irresponsible since the school rules don't apply to us anymore? The discipline master doesn't have any authority over us. We're not under the school rules, so shall we be reckless? Doesn't mean it doesn't matter now whether we cut our hair or not. Doesn't matter whether what clothes we wear or even if we wear them. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter whether we get up in the morning or sleep all day because we were playing computer games all night. Well, the problem is you and I might have escaped our obligations to our school, but it doesn't mean we're without obligation. You have obligation to your university, or at least to your parents for paying your fees. You have obligations to your company. You have obligations to your clients. You have obligations to your children or to your grandchildren. The fact that you're not under school rules doesn't mean for a moment that you don't have obligations. There are still things you have to do. 
does the fact that we are not under the law, but under grace, mean that we are free to sin? Verse 15. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience that leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, the gospel. And having been set free from sin, have, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He's making a human illustration here. He's saying, look, you've you got to serve someone. There was a song about that many years ago, wasn't there? Everyone, you've got to serve somebody. Some of the older people might remember it. Either you are a Slave to sin, like in the left-hand column. Or you're a slave of obedience, of Christ, of the gospel, of God, of grace, as in the right-hand column. If you're a slave to sin, then you're free from obligations of the right-hand side. If you're a slave on the right-hand side, then you're free of the obligations of the left-hand side. But you can't be in both sides at the same time. Either you're a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. It's like saying, you're not under the school rules, but you are under the company rules. Company rules may be different. They may not tell you what time you have to be where, but you still know that you've got targets to meet and you jolly well can't stay up all night playing computer games if you're going to meet your targets. So now you must forget your school rules and concentrate on the expectations of your company. And that is the same thing in the spiritual world. You used to be slaves of sin. You used to offer parts of your body to impurity. But now you have come to believe and obey the gospel from your heart. You know that Jesus is Lord. You have received him as your master. You have been freed from the slavery to sin. And now you are a slave of righteousness. And so now verse 19 continues. Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. See, when you presented your body parts to sin, you became more and more sinful. But now you're to present your body parts to righteousness, you're to become more and more holy. That's what sanctification is. It's becoming more and more holy. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit are you getting? Were you getting at that time from things which we are now ashamed of? The end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. Being a slave to sin leads to shameful behavior, leads to death. Being a slave of righteousness leads to sanctification and eternal life. What you'd rather be? Both ways you're a slave, but you have different masters. Different means and different outcomes. And we see that summarized in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who's the, who's the masters here? 
One side it is sin, and one side it is God. The outcomes, one side it is death, the other side is eternal life. And two ways of reaching those outcomes. On the one hand, sin pays wages. Get what you deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Something you can't earn, you can't deserve. Grace. So, brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, you have a new master. You have eternal life as a gift. You are under grace. Should you now sin because you are under grace? Should you now go out and just say, ah, I can do whatever I like now? Of course not. Jesus is Lord. You have a new master. Live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus died for us so that we can be justified from sin. Thank you that he rose again and sin and death have no more dominion over him. Thank you that you have united us with him in his death and resurrection so that we live in the new country. We live in his kingdom, not under sin, not obliged to sin but under him and obliged to him, under righteousness, living in grace. We thank you so much for the grace you've shown us and thank you that we can live in that wonderful grace, knowing that we are loved and accepted by you, not based on our performance. And we pray that that grace would so dominate our lives, that our motivations, our priorities, our actions, our thoughts would be all in response to the wonderful grace you've shown us in Jesus. That grace would be reigning in our lives. Jesus would be reigning in our lives. So that we would no longer be offering our parts to sin, but to righteousness and obedience. Help us, Father, we pray, to realize more and more who we are in Christ and to live more and more consistently with that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.